Oh God, I got a terrible. My memory is absolutely horrendous. My <laughs> wife's memory seems to go back to when she was like straight out of the womb. But uh, earliest memory. What was my earliest memory? I think when I was, uh, I must have been about three or four. I can remember moving from one house to the other with my parents. Uh, so we'd move from a little residential street in Bangor uh, out into the, the countryside in Bangor. Um, and I always remember driving up to the house for the first time because I was always used to a, a, like a sort of uh, normal suburban house. And mm. uh, my parents made the, uh, made the crazy decision to go and buy a farmhouse yeah. uh, and a little <laughs> land. Uh, so I can remember driving up to this house with a four or five acres and uh kind of thinking that this is the the new home for us uh and uh realizing that it was cool I got to play with tractors and oh, mate. all sorts of crap when i was uh younger which is probably where a little bit of my uh, kind of engineering brain came from it's amazing i like i'm continually surprised like number one at how many people from banger end up coming on this show like people always <laughs> joke they're like flip sake matt like are you just going to go ahead and rename it the best of banger already like you're totally off brand but the second thing is like why do so many entrepreneurs and particularly people involved in the startup scene seem to come from like rural backgrounds it's not typically what you would expect you know what i mean you kind of think of like that new york city city slicker um but actually there must be some sort of lessons of that rural environment that that apply well i think so well i think you know like we we work with a number of different uh startups smes and larger companies from the netherlands scandinavia germany uh the u.s and a lot of them like even like the u.s like the the big startups coming out of boston are usually from uh, you know farmers yeah. uh, from from the, from up north you know in sort of the Chicago area and Wisconsin you know I think it must just be if you're if you're on a farm you need to learn how to like tinker and I think that is that's a word actually we use a lot in Axial 3D the word tinker mm. and if you if you're good at tinkering and kind of fixing problems uh, and kind of MacGyvering solutions then uh, that uh, a farm is a pretty good place to to learn how to do that. Totally. And I guess like if you if you kind of look at the nuts and the, the bolts of it, you know, the farm family, you kind of got to be very entrepreneurial, don't you? I think so. Yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, if anyone who's just jumped in, they're like, what the heck are we talking about? Where are we? Uh, welcome to Best of Belfast. We are the podcast that celebrates Northern Ireland and the incredible people in it. Today, you've been hearing from the incredible Daniel Crawford already. He is the founder and CEO of Axial 3D. And these guys are doing such, such interesting things in the 3D printing space, particularly whenever it comes to the medical world. So if you go on their website and you check out some of their videos and their socials, you'll see all sorts of incredible things. You'll see them 3D printing anatomical structures. I saw a 3D printed kidney and a surgeon talking about how it helped him perform surgery better on one of his patients. And the most incredible part of all this is they have gone on to secure one of the largest um, investments that to ever come out of Northern Ireland. And I believe, Daniel, that you uh, started the, the bones of this while you were still a student. Is that right? I did, yeah. Uh, that's correct. So my uh, my initial undergraduate degree was in biomedical engineering. So I did that uh, over at the University uh, of Ulster at Jordanstown, specifically in the, the NIBEC campus there. Um, so that's kind of where my initial engineering degree came from. But I uh, subsequently went on uh, to do a master's in a thing called medical visualization and human anatomy 
over at the University of Glasgow. So that's kind of where the other half of this company comes from, which is the mm-hmm. sort of radiology aspect and uh, the kind of um, the anatomy portion of, uh, of what the company is you see today. But really, you know, I, I think Ulster's always been a, a pretty strong part of that. Uh, that's where the majority of the engineering aspect of the company had come from, uh, the rapid prototyping. And e- even initially with my uh, first couple of jobs, I've all been in Ulster spin-outs or startups with the likes of IntelliSense and Belfast. Mm. So to go kind of back slightly just before we go forward, I understand slightly where your engineering side came from. Uh, talk to us where that medical intervention sort of came. Where did that sort of uh, start coming about whenever you were going through school and everything like that? So that um, that came about when uh, I sort of I'd graduated from biomedical engineering and done what a lot of undergraduates and undergraduates do and kind of... Uh, panic a little uh, and not want to get a not want to get a full-time career job just yet so I'd, I'd looked at different PhDs and uh, sort of postgraduate studies and uh, I was actually at an Ulster careers fair and uh, I'd found or spoken to one of the deans at the University of Glasgow uh, and more specifically actually the University of Glasgow and the Glasgow School of Art um, so I had a very engineering heavy brain so I always thought that uh uh, it would be interesting to go to uh, sort of an, a mix of art and medicine. Uh, so the I ended up going over to Glasgow and studying uh, this master's, which was medical visualization and human anatomy. Um, so it's kind of split pretty much straight down the middle uh, on you do six months of pure cataract dissection in the, uh, in the University of Glasgow's uh, medicine department. So learning head-to-toe anatomy, superficial and deep anatomy, uh, musculoskeletal system, the organs, learning pretty much uh, the amount that uh, a senior surgeon or radiologist would know in terms of anatomy. And then the other half of that uh, degree was, it was actually carried out in the art school looking at, uh, in a place called the Digital Design Studio. So looking at how two-dimensional images in medicine are actually comprised. So those are CT, MRIs, pet spec ultrasound basically every every pixelated image that comes out of a hospital how that image is constructed and then trying to figure out new ways of taking a lot of that two-dimensional imagery and turning it into three-dimensional or sort of uh, three-dimensional volumetric representations of those of that data to mimic or replicate uh, the kind of the pure anatomy that we know of um, so that's really where the, the kind of medical side of that came about. And I suppose because I'd had the engineering degree before, I knew about uh, rapid prototyping, so more commonly known as 3D printing. I wanted to shoehorn that into the, <laughs> the thesis. So uh, for four months, I had the right of a uh, master's thesis. And what I wanted to base that all around was how I could take two-dimensional images, reconstruct them into 3D printable files, and then 3D print them. So initially, you know, like the, the sort of hypothesis for what I was doing was, can I take 2D files, make them into 3D models and 3D print them to teach people about, you know, difficult injuries or specific breaks of bones? But uh, I actually got my hands on a, a CT scan of a woman who'd been in a motorbike accident in Glasgow. Um, so took her scans, uh, segmented them, and 3D printed them for two surgeons in the Glasgow Western Infirmary, so a hospital, just pretty much 
hundred meters from uh, from my student digs in uh, <laughs> Glasgow, and uh, they were shocked because they'd uh, totally missed a a fracture that was on the woman's pelvis. Wow. Uh, from looking at the three D model that they hadn't actually seen in the two D images, so I think that was kind of the that was sort of the light bulb moment for the for the company happening. You know, knowing that there was a problem here that that could be addressed with a specific technology. Yeah, so it really, I mean, in some ways, it gives surgeons and other professionals the chance to actually take a good hard look at the problem before they open somebody up. That's mad. That, that's mad. That's exactly it. Because if you think about it, like uh, sort of a CT or an MRI scan, the way your surgeon will look at it is three or 400 two-dimensional photographs. Mm. And what they have to do is build those three or 400 two-dimensional photographs up as a three-dimensional picture and conceptualize that in their head. So I think, you know, there are some people are better at that than others, but I think no matter how good you are, or how much experience you've had, it, it is sometimes just really difficult to, to build that picture up and get a comprehensive overview. And, you know, we're, we're seeing that, you know, around 50% of surgeons that are actually getting these 3D models now are actually changing a diagnosis or changing the plan wow. that they originally had to go into theater just by having this physical representation or a new way of looking at their data. That's really interesting. I thought it was crazy to hear how it's one of those kind of great like uh, Leonardo da Vinci moments where it's that multi-discipline uh, kind of crossover of art and science. I thought that was really interesting. But was there any part of anatomy that you found really, really interesting and that you were more naturally curious about, whether it was skeletal structures or a particular organ? Uh, you know, What kind of really did it for you? So I think the um, probably one of the most interesting portions of what I was learning about was uh, the nerves. So the nervous system is just the most insane structure, uh, you know, that you could ever comprehend. It sort of stems from one bit in the brain, and then will go out to your fingertips and hundreds of thousands of different branches. Yeah. And I think until you start to get into, you know, like the, you know, the deep anatomy, like actually cutting a, a cadaver and figuring out where all the nerves go and what their functions are and what they do. It is just, you know, it's uh, it, it's an incredible thing to comprehend that that's actually happening. It's crazy, man. Absolutely crazy. I remember the first time I heard about you guys, and this was from like a, like a complete, like, you know, 30,000 foot distance. Um, I thought that you guys were like th starting to 3D print organs as in like repo men sort of like stuff. Have you seen that movie? <laughs> yeah yeah no i have it's funny that, that that's usually uh anytime we're speaking to anybody outside of the company or an investor they they always ask you know like so how far are you away from putting in a kidney or more often than not it's always how far are you away until you can give me a new liver yeah crazy but the the real kind of focus of the company is on that educational piece and trying to reduce reduce the risk and reduce kind of the error of um medical professionals you know carrying out procedures yeah yeah that's exactly it Matt. I, th I think you know 3d printing has actually been around uh since the early 80s and 3d printing in medicine uh, its first paper was published i think about 1991 oh my actually goodness. so it's it's been around for ages and the the actual you know the benefits of it have been documented for you know nearly 20 years but up until you know maybe four or five years ago this technology was you know, super, super expensive. It was reserved for the likes of, you know, the sort of high-end automotive industry or aeronautical industry. 
And then, you know, in terms of the technology to, to, to get from a 2D scan to a 3D printable file, it takes so it took a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of compute power, which is now, you know, a lot a lot more readily available. Mm. So then talk to me kind of about the the early days of this. So you clearly developed like a real interest. You shoehorn 3D printing into your thesis, which I love. I'm a big fan of that because, you know, why the heck not? You may as well uh, kind of chase your own curiosity there. But how do you go from having that curiosity to then thinking, I'm going to start a company based around this? But then most importantly, how did you actually start to do that? So I think the... uh the light bulb moment was definitely in that sergeant's office. And I think that, that that I always had the niggle from them and, you know, that I wanted to, I wanted to do something and kind of start a business. And, you know, we'd done, we'd done a little bit of kind of entrepreneurial stuff at uh, the university of Ulster with um, a guy called Jim McLaughlin and, uh, and Nybeck. So professor McLaughlin's actually, he was the founder of another company in Belfast called IntelliSense that I used to work for. Wow. So it's kind of saying that, you know, that was possible uh, and uh, knowing kind of some of the steps and, you know, how to write a business plan, you know, give me uh, some initial uh, sort of footholds into what I needed to do. But really when I I, uh, came back from Belfast uh, or came back to Belfast from Glasgow and uh, really wanted to get going with this and, you know, I'd, I'd... First thing I did was to approach uh, Invest Northern Ireland and kind of figure out, you know, if they had any advice for me. And I think the best piece of advice they they ever gave me was to actually go to what was well, what is now known as Catalyze, but was then known as the Northern Ireland Science Park, uh, and speak to a few people there. So that that was a really good source of information, you know, for me as a a first time founder and sort of just fresh out of university as to you know how the hell you you start a company. <laughs> Um, and uh, I actually ended up going through uh, a program called Springboard. So I initially had a business plan, and you know, uh, when I say business plan, it was just one step above, you know, the kind of scribbles on the back of a napkin kind of thing. Uh, but they were they were able to put me on the Springboard program, which is a it's based off a San Francisco model where you're paired with a person called an entrepreneur in residence. This is somebody who's been out there, done it before, built a company, exited a company, and kind of has all the, what they call scars of how to start and scale a company. So they can basically teach you about uh, those scars and sort of guide you as to what not to do. Um, and then during that 16-week process, they, they pretty much tear you to smithereens and build you back <laughs> up again. Um, so that 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 program was fantastic for me because it, it got me to the stage where, you know, I had a, a, I had a proper plan. I'd scoped out a market. I'd figured out, you know, the, the niche of where I could target my specific offerings and then where the big beachhead for us was, which was in, you know, orthopedic markets. So that, that kind of, that first 16 weeks was pretty enlightening. And what it also did was, you know, put me in front of a, a few people that I could pitch to you know, kind of refine, you know, what the offering was that I could go out and, you know, start to figure out how I would get investment for this, you know, and how I would build it out as an actual company. Hmm. What does beachhead mean? I've heard, I knew the context and like I've heard it loads of times, but what, where does it actually come from? So, um, so I think it's, uh, I think it derives from, you know, where you, where you invade a specific, you know, uh, country. You, you never invade a country like as a big wide, wide, uh, 
a wide country, you kind of go to a specific place and then you hit the beachhead there and then you know that you can get out and, you know, take over more of a country. And I think in the investment slash company context, it's don't try to boil the ocean and, you know, fix everything. <laughs> it's, 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 it's go after a specific market segment that you know is a, low, a piece of low-hanging fruit that you can acquire pretty easily. And then you can use that success to replicate in the others. And in our in our company's um, context, what that is is you know we, we don't go into a hospital and go right. I, I'll speak to every radiologist, orthopedic surgeon, cardiac surgeon, kidney surgeon, liver surgeon, hepato renal. You know every every specialist in medicine. You could spend you know a year trying to find every surgeon in a hospital and speak to them, but really going down specifically into where you think the the easiest market to get is and for us it was bones orthopedics it was mm. pretty pretty simple um procedure for us to do and we, we were seeing really really good benefits from it that's cool and so in terms of what you are actually really pushing for now i think Am I right in saying that it's not like you have a, a whole factory of 3D printers and you're, you know, you're banging out like thousands of bones every single day? It's very, very kind of intentional and you have you know, members of your own team in-house operating the printers and kind of making things on a, a case-by-case basis, yeah? So, so that was certainly uh, where the company was. Um, so we, we pivoted probably over the last uh, sort of two and a half years. Like when, when the company originally started, what we'd done was uh, we created a, an online application um, with actually a, it was a proof of concept grant from Techstart NI, where we found that getting data from a hospital and speaking to a surgeon was really difficult and took a long time. So mm. we, were, we created a little web application that pulled data from a hospital and allowed them to specifically ask what they wanted. So you can think of it like a, if you've ever used the Domino's pizza app, <laughs> it is it is pretty much exactly the same where it's a really easy little application where instead of going on and getting a pizza and then figuring out what cheese you want on it, what crust you want, what toppings you want on it, they give us the data and then they can tell us, you know, do they want the bone in white? Do they want it in gray? Do they want the bones to be connected? You know, and give us all the information up front so that we can manufacture the product for them and send it straight out to them without a lot of kind of back and forth. Um, and that, that was really how the company started and what we were, what we were doing. But what we, what we found when we were scaling uh, probably in the first couple of years and we started to get, you know, tenders with the NHS and the HSE in Ireland was that for us to continue doing the same thing that we were doing over and over and over again, which was to get data in segmented almost by hand mm. and then 3D printed by hand and then posted out by hand. You know, it, 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 was, a, it was a scalable business, but it, it definitely wasn't like an internationally scalable business. Yeah. So we needed to try to figure out what, what a solution was to, to really cut out any of the bottlenecks. And really, really what it was is everything that I'd learned to do during my master's. So effectively taking a two-dimensional stack of images and drawing on them to create a 3D model. That takes, you know, three or four hours of time per model. And then when we were writing uh, the kind of follow-up business plan to to kind of where the company is right now, I'd figured out that there were about three million of these types of uh, pathologies that we could uh, help with every year around the world. 
And when you look at 3 million of these injuries, and then you look at the amount of time it takes to actually fix or print these, mm. it would have taken uh, three and a half thousand years of manual <laughs> of manual intervention every year just to address the market. So that's when we kind of, I, I, I hate, I always hate using the word pivot because it's sort of a really cliche startup thing to say. Sure. But uh, let's say we evolved our offering a little bit. So we, we built the software product to, to basically automate those steps out. It's great. So is it a case of the, say, the surgeon or the medical profession themselves uploading the images then? Or how have you started to automate some of that process? Yeah, so they they just tell uh, someone within their department what images they need. They give us the prescription. The, then the data can automatically come within the company and then say it's a it's a bone that is required instead of a, a human doing that uh, what we have is a is a machine learning algorithm which basically does the same portion of work as a human where it looks at the scan tries to figure out where the bone is and segment that bone out and it does that in minutes instead of hours wow. and then it means that all of our engineers are doing is evaluating the the machine's work and then putting it onto the printer and one of the other things that's actually uh, we've started to see as the years have gone on is uh, hospitals are actually starting to adopt 3D printing themselves. So um, really what we're doing now is, you know, we're pushing towards a kind of the future market is we do the work for the surgeon and then it prints out within the hospital. Wow. That's incredible. So yeah, you are the you're the interface that then connects with their in-house 3D printer. So I mean, what would the turnaround time be then for you know a specific bone, I suppose, to be printed then? So for for our turnaround times, what we want them to be, um, you know, it's it's less than twenty four hours from them making an order to a print actually coming out of a printer. And for us, you know, we we cut down all of the the software steps which you know we're cutting away three or four hours worth of time to minutes and the other thing is that you know if you're getting huge amounts of these in at a time you can't you know you can't schedule them very well mm -hmm. so having the ability to automate them means that you can put more in in a day but also you know the, the 3d printing you know takes anywhere from kind of eight to sort of 14 or 15 hours of time so that that's you know less than a day's turnaround time for for this kind of product that you know for any surgeon doing it today and if they're outsourcing it could take four to six weeks what is the the actual material that is used in the 3d printing process you know it's a very basic question but i know a lot of us uh who are sitting listening to you here you know we we've obviously heard of 3d printing and we've maybe even held something that's been 3d printed but the whole concept of how that even works i think is is kind of lost on a lot of us so I think the the materials can be really really diverse. So you can print in a huge huge amounts of materials, but for for ours specifically with the medical models that we make, largely they're polymers, so just plastics. Um, and we use a lot of uh, a technology called SLA, which is sort of uh, regarded as the industry standard. And the the polymer, which is a it's a liquid form that is cured with light to make it a solid plastic. Um, is made of a thing called a photopolymer resin. And it actually, it ends up coming out very much like the um, the plastic that you'd know from the likes of, you know, like a Lego brick. Mm. So, it, so it's quite rigid and um, it can be cut into, it can be drilled into, 
and it can be it's, it's quite decorative of bone or you know other portions of anatomy and there you know we can print in uh, softer materials like rubbers so that if they're you know trying to mimic the the materials of a, a newborn baby's heart they can print wow. it in a softer material and then figure out how they're going to sew and suture different portions of that heart. It's incredible. So, I mean, you've built this really versatile um, system in place, I suppose, that can do a whole bunch of different things. I mean, even just hearing what you're saying, you know, you're talking about 3D printing something like a baby's heart, like that is just absolutely incredible. But how have things changed then? Uh, you know, COVID comes along, the needs in the medical world shift exponentially and shift dramatically. A lot of, say, elective surgeries aren't going forward. Maybe there's not as much going on in the bone market, uh, but there's there's a lot more uh, you know needs elsewhere. How have you been able to, we'll use the word evolve as you did, and uh, make the most of the opportunities and, and meet the needs that are in front of you uh, throughout this sort of situation? Yeah, so this... Uh this current situation has been uh, a bit of a, a bit of an odd one for us. Um, I, I think we had originally assumed that all surgeries would be completely uh, cut out, mm. and we'd have no work to do for you know the last three or four months. But I think the the nature of what we do, because we're in a, a sort of a medical environment, you know, people still have accidents, people still have heart problems, people still unfortunately get cancer during this whole pandemic so we, we are still seeing uh, a lot of a lot of models coming in for uh, emergency cases um, but you're completely right in terms of like elective cases that it has been reduced quite uh, quite significantly but we've we've shifted um, a little bit of that capacity that's opened up with our uh, print form in the UK and US to to actually you know print things like uh, PPE for um, frontline healthcare workers in hospitals and care homes and pharmacies and a lot of that's to do with things like uh, face shields um, and goggles and protective uh, protective wear mm. and one of the other things actually that we've, we've been a part of is um, doing rapid prototyping for things like uh, ventilator systems and uh, Little things like uh, oxygen valves, you know, that um, a lot of hospitals were running out of very quickly and uh, the supply chain was drying up. And uh, one of the more recent developments is in uh, coronavirus testing swabs. So we're able to, to print testing swabs um, in, you know, tens of thousands a day. Wow. Uh, where, you know, traditional manufacturing, um, the, the traditional manufacturers of the, the this the specific swab used for coronavirus. There's there's only you know two or three suppliers on Earth, and their supply chain has completely been dry, like dried up. So the only way to actually manufacture enough of these testing swabs for the the current need is to three D print them. And I think that's where like a lot of people are starting to see three D printing as being less of a kind of gimmicky early stage market product, as you know this is a physical thing that can actually address a lot of problems you know right now and we're seeing that during this crisis totally man so talk to me a wee bit about the investment side of your business and i suppose just before we get into that um one of my favorite questions to ask um guests is how do you make money uh whether you're a comedian or whether you're a writer or whether you know you're a business how do you does the company actually go about making money 
figuring out how to sell whatever you've got. <laughs> and that sounds so trite and stupid, but I, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people make things that are really good, but don't figure out how to sell them. Mm. And you almost need to do it the other way around. You need to figure out how to sell it and who to sell to, and then you need to make it. So the the biggest thing is actually getting, uh, figuring out how to sell it, and then getting good salespeople in. I think that's probably actually one of the one of the things that I've learned over the last few years is like I think in Northern Ireland, actually probably, you know, sort of a, a UK wide thing, is sales tends to be a bit of a, a dirty word. Mm-hmm or a dirty profession, but it's actually, you know, one of the most important or it is the most important, you know, for any, for any small startup is getting sales and getting initial traction there. To sidetrack a wee bit, why did you come back to Northern Ireland after Scotland? That's a good question. Actually. Um, I actually, initially, uh, I, I'd assumed that Northern Ireland wouldn't have any startup programs or anything really uh, of huge benefit to me um, and because I had this idea I was actually I was going to move over to the US um, but when I'd actually scratched the surface a little bit and figured out you know Invest Northern Ireland does have all these amazing programs and a lot of you know financial help for for startups and scale-ups and you know the likes of the Science Park or Catalyst as they're known now you know they they do have these incredible initiatives that make us you know they're almost unfair that they're they're that good and they're that <laughs> helpful um but i think one of the things that i've learned is that northern ireland are not good at shouting about what they're good at mm-hmm. so i think i had to come back and assume that you know there's, there's probably nothing you know nothing here that could i could help that could help me but if I, when i actually dug a bit deeper there's a huge huge amount of talent and a huge huge amount of resource here that you know you can start a company with and you know it, it's one of the best places it's actually one of the best places in the world to have a startup at the moment because labor's not super highly inflated like you know the silicon valleys or the bostons of the world and we are a super educated nation you know with two incredible universities on the island and you know a huge talent pool to, to take from yeah and i think like the the proof really is in the pudding and um, you know, if you look at your own journey and your own success, being able to go out and raise money, never mind raise such a large check of money. Uh, as someone who, you know, as you said before, you were an engineer background and then you, you got into the, the medical kind of side of stuff. It's not like you were trained in economics or you were trained in all this sort of stuff that I think a lot of people have it in their head of, oh, I, you know, I haven't trained in finance. I don't understand how that world works. But you have clearly been able to learn very quickly how to be in that world and then of course get the right people on board to to help you kind of move forward so what was what has your investment journey been like to date and maybe some of your your key kind of insights you've picked up along the way uh what's it been like to date am i allowed to swear (laughs) (laughs) that's uh work away it's it's hard to hard to say that journey without swearing uh oh no i'm joking um, well, I think like the number one thing is really what uh, the, the best thing that I did very, very early on was getting really, really good people around me who've done it before. 
and people who can teach you how to actually, you know, what an investment round looks like, how much you're going to need for you know, specific tasks, what what a good solicitor looks like, uh, you know, what, what the different stages of investment looks like. And I think the, the only way to really learn and learn how to do it properly is to just kind of dive in with both feet and do it. Mm. Uh, and then surround yourself with lots of people to give you good advice. And I think that going back to the point I made earlier, and uh, you know, Northern Ireland is, if you ask around, there are actually a lot of really, really incredible people that, you know, can give you advice. And because, you know, we've got a good uh, sort of camarad- camaraderie uh, between everybody here, you know, if you ask, people will help. You know, people do like uh, to help people out. Yeah. So how much have you raised to date and what type of a runway does that give you to your next step and what is that kind of next step? So we've done uh, we've done a couple of raises over the last sort of three or four years. Um, our initial seed round uh, in total um, last, we did a couple of tranches, uh, was just over a million pounds uh, total. And then uh, we raised another investment round there uh, sort of summertime last year, which was um, around $3 million. So in total with uh, equity investments plus grant uh, opportunities, uh, we've had a total a total liquidity in the company of around $5 million over the last four four years incredible man um so that really what um our, our current runway you know uh if we if we stay where we are you know we can we can continue to grow and kind of uh, organically grow as a company uh pretty much you know indefinitely but you know with with the type of company that we're creating it's it's high growth and we're trying to take as much of a market and develop as quickly as possible so that that means taking on more people uh, than you know our, our profits can actually take which will mean mm. getting another investment eventually yeah uh, with the view that you know as we build the company up and as we as we build more market traction we'll we'll be able to be a, a hugely pro- a more profitable com- company than if we didn't take the take another round of investment totally so in terms of what you actually need in terms of people's skill sets, what is the company hungry for what type of uh skills or what type of professions you know what do you need most in terms of your your people power so we uh we split the company uh pretty much into three legs of the stool so there's the sales and marketing aspect of the company so really really good uh digital marketers or salespeople. uh the other leg of the stool is in software development so that's uh, and a huge portion of that software development is in uh, machine learning. So people with uh, physics backgrounds or mathematics backgrounds who have then gone on to do software development. And then the, the third portion is in uh, engineering or more specifically in biomedical engineering. So people who have an understanding of you know engineering principles, but also have that kind of uh, anatomy and uh clinical brain as well so it's it's quite a we, we have a quite a diverse range of people within the company but i think again going back to what i said earlier is like northern ireland actually has you know a really really good pool of people to, yeah. to take from yeah so i guess like to kind of tie this part up 
Um, what would you say to maybe some of the students listening? Because I know, um, not to overgeneralize, and I'm speaking myself as a student, there are those students who seem to be incredibly self-motivated, who are just going to go out and start businesses and be super successful, almost no matter what, okay? And then there are other types of students who are maybe lacking confidence or they are not sure how to pursue opportunities or they maybe think that now is not the right time for them to do, you know, to start that project, to start that business, to pursue whatever that is. And they'll kind of say, okay, well, I'll do this after uni or I'll do this later in the future. What do you kind of think are some of the opportunities of starting a business while being a student? And uh, I really like how you kind of leveraged your studies uh, to benefit your business and you used your degree not just to get the piece of paper but actually to to build a springboard to to launch like a great company from yeah so i think um main advice that i would have for anybody uh actually wanting to start a business is to speak to as many people as possible within the kind of startup space uh good places to start are the likes of Invest and I or uh, Catalyst in Northern Ireland, um, really, really good place to start. If and what they'll do is they'll they'll point you in the direction of people to give you advice, and I think that's the that's probably the biggest single piece of advice I would have is surround yourself with really, really good people within your industry who'll be able to validate your idea and help you kind of build a a sort of plan or structures how you would take that idea and make it into an actual business. Um, you know, that, that that's that's the main thing. And I think that Northern Ireland's a really, really good place to do that because people, you know, more than nine times out of ten, if you ask somebody for their help, they're go- they're gonna say yes. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. Daniel, there's a couple of stock questions that we kind of wrap up every interview with. Uh, they're the hard questions. That's why we kind of save them to the end. Uh, okay. But the first one, just kind of tying into some of the things that you've already shared. Um, what has been the biggest challenge you've experienced so far? And if you don't mind sharing, how have you been able to overcome that? Um, biggest challenge? There's probably uh, a cheat and use two. Oh, yeah, work away. Right. So I think the uh, biggest biggest challenge is uh probably getting an investment was one of the biggest challenges um really really difficult thing to do and requires a lot of resilience it's going to be a pain in the arse and it takes a long time and you have to learn a lot of uh new things and you'll be let down you know half the time by the majority of the investors so you know that that's something you just need to kind of grow a thick skin for um and the other one is probably people uh they can you know people in a business or or what makes or breaks it and i think that unless you get uh, when you're starting out you need to be very very uh specific as to who you want within the company and the type of people that you want in the company and getting good at getting rid of people that are uh not good for the company yeah. is uh is certainly not something that's very nice yeah the man that's tough especially in the our context where you know we're so kind of people pleasing orientated but you know it's i guess that's part of the job your job is to to make those tough decisions to see uh, the success of the company go forward. 
Yeah. Cool. Kind of opposite of that last question then, how about the greatest success you've experienced along the way? Is there like a standout moment that you always kind of look back to where you were just absolutely buzzing? There's there's tons of them. There's tons of, uh, I always say that uh, start up unless you're depressed or elated six times a day, then you're... <laughs> in a startup uh, but I think like one of, the, one of the best things at least about what we do and what uh, we always hear from everybody in the company is that the biggest motivator is actually seeing how the product impacts patients mm. so we do uh, we do a thing called model of the week so whatever model went out last week and had the biggest impact on a patient's life you know we, we always report on it and that's what what gets everybody absolutely buzzing but i think you know there's been a there's been a couple of cases where you know the going back to one of the previous examples i've given earlier a, a baby's heart where we uh, it was a surgeon down in dublin and this baby had been born was three months old and uh, had a thing called a atrial septal defect a, a big hole in its heart uh, and you can imagine a baby's heart is about the same size uh, as a ping pong ball, wow. all in. And uh, there's a big hole uh, in the center of it. And when the surgeons had initially looked at the scans, they you know, figured out that the, the baby probably wasn't going to make it and there was nothing they could do. Mm. But when they were given the 3D print and they were able to actually figure out like they could get specific catheters down in the specific arteries and they did have a, an avenue to treat them that they hadn't initially seen on the 2D images, they were effectively able to go in and save that baby's life just by having this new way of looking at the looking at their data. So that those kind of stories are the thing that you know keeps us going. It's incredible, man. So 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 good, man. Like what a great motivator model of the week. I absolutely love that. That's such a great such a great thing to do. No, you can. Uh, we've got a we've got a newsletter. You can sign up and you can get it too if you want. Oh, here, check that out. I'll definitely be be getting on that. Is there anyone from Northern Ireland, you know, if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for like a, a coffee, who would you take? Anyone you'd like to sit down with, pick their brain? Oh God, that's a good question. Someone from Northern Ireland. I think a good person to take out would probably be probably someone like Brendan Mooney from Kenos. Mm. He's CEO of Kinos now, but just, and this goes back to the kind of, if you've never done it before, always surround yourself with people who have and have done it well. You know, looking at how do you, if we were down the, down the line to go from a sort of private company to a public company, you know, what does that journey look like and how hard is it and what things you should look out for? So something like that, someone who's, someone who's done a, uh, uh, an initial public offering before. Yeah. Totally, man. I guess like one of the ways we like to end these is um, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's it's kind of my favorite place to end. And it's just really simply if we could go back in time somehow to like uh, an 18 version of yourself and you could take yourself out for a cup of coffee and, uh, you know, pass on some of the, the insights and the wisdom you've kind of picked up along the way through this journey. What sort of things would would you say to a younger Daniel? 
Also a good question. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Uh, probably to think less, because like uh, some of the some of the issues probably and why we're we've we've made a lot of progress over the last few years. But I think if we we probably could have been a lot further on if you know initially when the company was starting, you know I hadn't have hesitated when I was making any decisions on the likes of you know going for an investment. And not kind of overanalyzing it, just sort of do more and think less. Unbelievable, man. Well, here, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing everything with us that you did. I really, really appreciate it. Not very good, Matt. Uh, thanks very much. Awesome. And thank you very much for listening. I really, really appreciate you spending this time with Daniel and myself. Dude, I found that really, really insightful. Honestly, like, I've kind of like three main things that I wrote down here. Don't try to boil the ocean. I absolutely love that. That's class. Surround yourself with good people. And then just as you heard there, think less, do more. Really, 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 really cool. And I uh, hope you enjoyed this. If you have been listening to the show for a while, thank you so much for um, tuning in again to this one. If it's your first time, you can go and check out over 150 interviews with great people from Northern Ireland, just like Daniel and lots of other incredible people too. And other than that, just want to say thanks again and uh, look forward to catching you next Monday morning.